The origin and scope of the creation testifies to the infinite power of the Creator. When you consider the heavens, the work of God's finger, the moon and the stars, it should bring us to the point of humility before His infinite power. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to Job 38, Job 38, Lord willing, we'll spend the next hour going through Job 38 and 39. As you remember, we've spent about two months in the life of Job, and he's a name that's synonymous with endurance and patience when suffering. He lost his health, his wealth, his family, his friends, his illness, he had a skin disease, among other things, made him unclean, so he was ejected from his social group and literally spent the entire book sitting outside the city walls at the dump. So this book was uh, recorded, the dialogue, at the city dump outside the walls. He's been there for months now, and he has no idea why he is suffering. Remember, he has three friends who came and comforted him. Really, they accused him of being a grossly uh, hard sinner, and that's why God was uh, punishing him. Their idea was that if you were suffering, it was proof positive that you were sinning because God never allowed the righteous to suffer. Of course, that was a wrong-headed assumption, but they believed it all the way to the end. Job, on the other hand, believes he's innocent. He can find nothing in his life that would indict his conscience for having been suffering like he has, and so he wrongly concludes that God is unjust in punishing a righteous man. So he demands a court date with God. He wants to take God to court and formally bring charges against God, and he's looking for an umpire. He's looking for a referee who can lay his hand on both God and man and come between, which, of course, the mediator is a picture of the coming Messiah. So he demands a court date, and his younger friend Elihu, we spent some time last week, sends six chapters, 156 verses, this guy has a lot of words. Women, if you wanted a wordy guy, Elihu's your guy. He's got lots of words. And he suggests, Job, you're suffering not because you necessarily you're sinning, but God allows suffering to teach us, to educate us, and get our attention, as well as to exercise uh, punishment for sin. So Elihu speaks and speaks, and when he's done, there's a storm approaching. And God is in the storm. And that's where we are today in Job 38. And you know that sometimes God speaks to us in a still, small voice, and sometimes God speaks to us through a storm. As a matter of fact, I think our hearing aid works better in the storm than it does in the still, small voice because we don't have the volume cranked up real loud when he speaks in the still, small voice. So he raises the volume to make sure we're hearing. When God descended on Mount Sinai to give Israel the law, he descended on the top of the mountain. There was thunder and lightning and a great earthquake, and it said there was the sound of a trumpet. And when I read the description, the only thing I can think of is a jet aircraft engine taken off, and you're behind the afterburner. It, it dominated the landscape. God spoke to Elijah back on the mount again after a storm and an earthquake, and it said the earthquake was so strong it split the rocks on the mountain, and, Mo, and Elijah's there, there's a fire, and then God spoke to him in a still small voice after he got his attention with the storm. On the day of Pentecost, as you recall, the Holy Spirit came like a mighty rushing wind, and the sound of that wind was so loud in Acts 1 and 2 that people rushed outside to see what was going on. So we assume this little rushing wind was a little breeze. Apparently it was so loud that it dominated the oral landscape at that point in time. So God has, or Job has demanded the day with God in court, and he's going to get it, but it's not going to be what he expects. He thinks God's going to respond to his subpoena. No, no. God issues his own subpoena to Job. God is now the divine prosecutor, and he demands answers from Job. Instead of answering Job's question, God has questions for Job. 
over 70 questions. Now, what they teach you in law school is you never ask a question in a court of law you don't already know the answer to. God knows the answer to these questions, and Job doesn't know any of them, and God knows that Job doesn't know. These questions were designed really to reveal God's power and wisdom as the creator and sustainer of his universe, and they were also designed to show Job his ignorance, his arrogance, and bring Job to humility and repentance. They were really an oral science examination. These questions covered cosmology, oceanography, meteorology, astronomy, and zoology, and Job is ignorant. Since Job could not comprehend or control how God governed nature, God is saying, how can you possibly dispute how I operate my universe, including my relationship with human beings, and that means you, Job. So God never explains his ways to Job. He exhibits himself to Job, and that's crucial. Many, many times we say, God, why, 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 why? When you come into the presence of the Lord, the whys become irrelevant. We're going to talk about that. So Job 38 to 42 is the longest recorded speech by God in all of Scripture. Four chapters. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. I think right then Job knew he was in deep doo-doo. <laughs> Just saying. Daddy has come home, and you're in deep doo-doo. Here's the principle. Acknowledging your own ignorance is the first step toward acquiring wisdom. Acknowledging your own ignorance is the first step toward acquiring wisdom. In the colloquial, God is saying to Job, why do you talk when you don't know what you're talking about? Job has claimed to be God's friend. And instead of defending God's justice, Job has denied God's justice and accused him of being unjust and criticized God without knowledge. In other words, he's operating from ignorance. He's actually exalted himself above God and declares that he knows better than God and he's going to take God to court and put God on trial. So God is now going to examine Job to see if, in fact, Job is competent to run God's universe. Just thought. He says, gird yourself like a man. Back in those days, they wore these robes that went down to the ankles. And that was for modesty's sake, and they had a wide belt around your waist. But when you wanted to work or fight, you tucked in the robe above the knees, tucked it in so you'd be free to operate, whether you're fighting or whatever it happened to be. God says, get ready, we're going to rumble. You get your brain in gear because I'm going to examine you now and you're going to have to know the answer. So he begins a series of questions about the origins of the earth. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were, what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Here's the principle. The origin and scope of the creation testifies to the infinite power of the creator. The origin and scope of the creation testifies to the infinite power of the creator. And that's obviously true today. The creation itself is the single biggest physical manifestation of the power of the creator. So God asked Job, where were you when I planned, designed, and built the universe? Well, obviously no human being existed on day one through five, right? And nobody witnessed how God did it during creation week. Since Job was obviously absent at the beginning, he doesn't have the divine information that God used to create his universe, and he's ignorant. So God describes this creation like a construction project. It's a design build. You ever worked with a designer and built your house? Well, God did the same thing. He uses words like foundation, measuring lines, bases, footings, cornerstones. These are construction terms. So God created the building materials out of nothing, right? And then he constructed the universe days two through five. He filled it. Verse 8, 38.8. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment 
and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it. And I set a bolt and doors and I said, thus far you shall come and no further, and here shall your proud waves stop. You know, when you view the earth from space, the most prominent and visible part of the universe is the water. It's the oceans. We actually call it the water planet. It's unique. The ocean covers about 71% of the world's surface, about 140 million square miles, a lot of water. The volume of the ocean is about 322 billion cubic miles, or million cubic miles. That's a lot of water. God describes the ocean not as a construction project, but as a birthing project. He describes it like giving birth. He said, he describes it like a newborn baby coming out of the womb. That's the ocean coming out of God's creative power. Now, water is H2O, two atoms of hydrogen, one of oxygen, and God never tells us how we combined those together to produce water, but he describes the process like giving birth. And he says, I put the ocean in a playpen so the waves would be contained and not, con not create havoc on the earth. You recall, 1 Genesis 1 and 2, God separated the water on the earth from the land. That was the first separation. And then he separates the water from the earth from the water in the atmosphere. So we have this atmosphere, this water canopy, around the earth that God designed to filter out uh, harmful solar radiation, protect life on earth, give us the hydrologic cycle after the flood, etc., etc. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but it seems very, very plausible that before the flood, this water canopy contained a lot more water and filtered out a lot more radiation. So I wouldn't have to be going in to get my nose whacked because I've got, you know, melanoma on it. You didn't have sunscreen back then. You didn't need it because the canopy actually filtered out the radiation, which partially may explain why lifespans were so much longer at that point. Verse 12, God continues his questioning. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment, and from the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Here's the next principle. The unparalleled organization and complexity of the creation reveals the infinite wisdom of the creator. The unparalleled organization and complexity of the creation reveals the infinite wisdom of the creator. So when he says, you've ever commanded the dawn, he's talking about sunrise, sunset, like Fiddler on the Roof. It says that God controls the daily sequence of dawn and darkness. And, you know, the, the, the details of this, Job has no clue of. The sunrise comes up at a slightly different angle every day. You probably notice the days are getting longer since June 21. That's because the sun comes up at a slightly different angle, and it goes down at a slightly different angle, right? God's in charge of that. God says, Job, do you, can you tell the sun to go up? Can you tell the sun to go down? He says, when the sun rises, it chases away the darkness and things become increasingly visible. And then he highlights this relative to moral behavior. He says, the wicked love the darkness because it believe, they believe it conceals their activities and no one can see what they're doing in the dark. And he says, the light shakes the wicked back inside their den or their caves because their fear of being discovered. So God is not only asking Job, can you control sunrise, sunset, but can you use the light and the darkness to curtail the activities of wicked people? Well, not really. So, Job, if you can't control light and darkness, how can you question what I'm doing in your life? Verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. So he's asking Job about things that he can't see, unseen, invisible things. The springs of the sea refer to deep ocean trenches. When you get down at the seabed floor, we have these things called hydrothermal vents, which are erupting from the seabed. Some of them just put out pure water, but most of them are water plus sulfide minerals. They, we call them smokers because the ejected water is often colored black because of the sulfide minerals, and they look like smoke coming up from a chimney. You'll notice these if you watch any nature channels. The deepest part of the ocean, he's talking about how deep the ocean is, is called the Challenger Deep. It's located in the Pacific Ocean. 
there's a Marianas Trench near the island of Guam. The southwestern end of that is the deepest part of the ocean in the Pacific. It's 36,198 feet deep, about 6.85 miles deep. Mount Everest is 29-something thousand. You could put Mount Everest in that trench, and it'd be covered with a mile of water. So it's pretty deep. You probably won't go scuba diving down there. We have sent... Uh, uh, unmanned voyages down there, and it's rather interesting. Obviously, there's no light and massive, massive amounts of pressure. So we have this massive ocean, and Isaiah 40 says that God measures the water in the hollow of one palm. Just to give you some reference. You want to know how big God is? Yeah. I can dip the Pacific Ocean with a hollow of one hand and take a drink. He said, do you know about the gates of death and outer darkness? You know, until recently... We knew more about the surface of the moon than we did what was going on in the underwater world of our own oceans. Because sunlight extends about 200 meters below the surface. If you're in the ocean, sunlight will go down about 200 meters, 656 feet, something like that. Below that, it is dark. And no photosynthesis takes place, but there's massive light forms down there, most of which generate their own light, utterly intriguing. There's all sorts of things down there that we're now seeing, colors that we couldn't dream of before. And you say, why would God make colors when no one can see them? Because he likes to look at it. God created the universe because it brings him pleasure. It ain't all about us. Isn't that disappointing? <laughs> Actually, it's very comforting that God is sovereign. He said, do you know about the expanse of the earth, Job? The, the earth is 24,859 miles circumference. The weight of the earth is 13 billion trillion tons. Those numbers mean absolutely nothing to me. I mean, those are just big numbers, although our federal debt's going to get up there if we keep spending like this. I mean, it's amazing. The mass of the earth is 5.98 kilograms times 10 with 24 zeros after it. Tom can tell you about that. That is a very large numbers. But our sun can hold 1.3 million Earths. You think the Earth is big? You could put 1.3 million Earths inside the sun. No problem. Even Jupiter could hold 1,300 Earths. So we're, we're, there's a big place, but relative to the rest of the universe, nah, not so much. Verse 19. God says, Job, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered into the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that light is divided or east wind scattered on the earth? So God asked, Job, do you know how light was made? Well, we know who made it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and God said, let there be, and there was light. But we don't know how he did it. And God says, not only, Job, do you not know where light came from, do you know its residence? Do you know its address? Do you have a GPS, Job, that can take you to the address of light and darkness? Now, obviously, Job has no clue that God moves the earth as it revolves around the sun every 365 and a quarter days per year. He has no idea that the earth rotates on its axis every 24 hours. God says, Job, you must know these things. These are elementary because you're a, such a wise man and an old man. He was probably about 65 to 70 years old then. He says, God, God says, Job, do you know where I store up the snow and the hail? Because I have a specific strategy for storms and snow and hail for times of distress and battle. See, one of the things in God's creation, everything has its place and its purpose. Wouldn't it be nice if our houses looked like that? There are no junk drawers in God's universe like we have in our homes. You know, we have lots of junk drawers. Because just in case I might need it. And then when I try and find it, I can't find it. So I go to the store and buy another one. And then I put it in a junk drawer, and it happens every, you know, two or three. Pathetic. It's a good thing God has everything in his place. He knows right where it is, and he never has to create anymore. 
You ever thought about that? I mean, if God lost stuff, he'd just have to create more. But he said at the end of six days, creation's done because he never loses anything. Maybe he should come clean our house. Yeah, that's metaphorical and literal as well. So the Bible records battles that were influenced by severe weather. You know, the sun stood still for Joshua and, and Deborah and Barak and judges won a decisive victory over King Jabin due to a massive thunderstorm. Their chariots wouldn't work in the mud. They got ankle deep or axle deep, rather, and wouldn't work. And he talks about Job. Do you know how light is divided? You ever taken light and had a glass prism and seen all the various wavelengths of light, all the way from red to violet, etc.? And how those light waves influence photosynthesis and all, all the processes on Earth? Job, do you know how that works? Job, do you know light divided could also refer to lightning? Do you know where lightning's going to strike next? Job, do you know where winds are going to blow on the earth next? Well, we have some weather forecasting, but we really don't even know the precise path of tornadoes or hurricanes. We, we kind of have ideas where they're going, but we can't predict that. Even today, Job obviously had no idea, but God does. Verse 25. Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of the earth to sprout? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb have come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Job says, look, I, or God says, I care for the desert. I care for the wasteland. I send rain so that plants can grow even though no one's there to see it. For rain to form, moisture has to coalesce around a tiny dust speck. If you don't have dust in the air, raindrops can't coalesce around that dust speck and form water. So the father of the rain is dust. That's why we seed clouds with various kinds of particles, hoping that the raindrops will stick to these particles and will get rain. God says, the father of the rain is dust, and I'm also the author of ice and snow. Water, we're the water planet, is the most unique substance that we know of, at least in our solar system. Water is the only substance that expands when it freezes. Everything else contracts. It gets smaller. That's extremely important because ice, as it expands, is less dense than liquid water, and it floats on the surface. And ice on the surface of the water provides a degree of insulation for life under the water. If ice contracted, water contracted when it got frozen, lakes would freeze from the bottom up not from the top down. If that occurred, life would be impossible because we would be an ice planet, there'd be no liquid water. God thinks of everything. Isn't it amazing? So he thinks about you and I, just like he thinks about the molecules. It's amazing. Verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season? and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinance of the heavens or their rule over the earth? Here's the principle. This is going to be the next several verses. God's control goes from the macro, stars and galaxies, to the micro, raindrops, subatomic particles, and genomes. And I could make this list go on ad infinitum, but we're just going to keep it simple. God's control goes from the macro, stars and galaxies, to the micro, raindrops, subatomic particles, and genomes. Now, the Pleiades are known as the Seven Sisters. It's a star constellation they originally thought only contained seven stars. It's actually a star cluster of about 250 stars. It's in the constellation of Taurus, the bull, which is about 450, 415 light years from our solar system. These stars are about one light year apart. That's a light year is how long it takes light to travel for one year. Big distance, right? And they are bound together by mutual gravitational attraction. So this star constellation, about 250 stars, stays together because of mutual gravitational attraction. These stars seem to be the same age, which would make sense, same chemical composition, and they're all traveling in the same direction. 
They're like a flock of birds flying in formation, and gravity keeps them in formation. And God says, Job, can you keep these stars together? I can. Can you loose the cords of Orion? Now, Orion's the star formation that has three stars horizontally. It looks like a band or a belt. Looks like a waistband or a belt. And it's interesting, the stars that make up Orion's belt are not bound together by gravity. As a matter of fact, over time, the two stars on the right of this belt are going to move together. They're going to become a binary star, and the one on the left is going to move away, and Orion's belt will cease to exist. Job can't loose the cords of Orion, but God is doing it as we speak. Fascinating. The bear refers to the star Arcturus. It has, it has actually 52 satellite suns nearby. And they are part of the constellation Ursa Major, or the Great Bear. It's about 37 light years away. That's just in our neighborhood. 37 light years is like really close. Arcturus is a red giant. It's the fourth brightest star in the sky. It shines about 113 times brighter than our sun. It's actually considered a runaway star. It travels through the heavens at about 90 miles a second. By way of comparison, our sun is pretty slow. It only travels at 12 and a half miles per second. But if you tried to run 12 and a half miles, it'd be pretty tough, right? Still pretty fast. So this red giant star, its mass and velocity make it impervious to gravitational influences of the surrounding star system. God says, Job, can you control this? I can. Job, God says, Job, do you understand the ordinances of the heavens? Now, ordinance refers to laws. God created the heavens and the earth, and everything in the universe operates according to divine law. I just looked up for grins a couple nights ago, the laws of physics. There are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of laws that we are discovering all the time about how the universe works, and every single one of them is a testament to the organizational genius of infinite wise God. The stars didn't come about by chance. Everything in the universe is governed by physical laws that God put in place when he discovered them, and we are still discovering the laws that govern God's universe. And the more we discover, the more the evidence piles up to bring conviction to those who reject obvious truth. 38-34, Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of rain may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that may go and say to them, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? God says, Job, you're so weak, you can't even command the rain. Now, if we could command the rain, we wouldn't have a drought. Think about it. If someone could command a cloud cover to come over, I would say, you've been sleeping, bring us a few inches, right? Job can't command the lightning bolts, tell him where to go, but God says, I command the lightning bolts. Not only that, God says, I put my wisdom in the innermost being. He's talking about subatomic particles. He's talking about DNA. He's talking about genomes. He's talking about cell replication. He's talking about the invisible things in the universe that we can't see that have massive impacts on how we live. So God has been talking to Job about the origin and the organization of the universe, and now he's going to move from his role as creator of the universe to sustainer of the creation. Just a quick summary passage. Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. There was nothing created that Jesus Christ did not create. Fascinatingly, verse 17 of Colossians 1.16 says that in Jesus Christ, all things, quote, hold together, hold together. It literally means that Jesus is holding the subatomic particles, the building blocks of the universe together. It seems to indicate, and I could spend a day or two on this just from the Bible, that the universe requires external supernatural divine energy flowing into it to keep it from disintegrating. Now, 1 Peter tells us that when the final judgment comes, this is the earth is going to be reserved by fire, it's going to be burned up. It has the idea of Jesus letting go the strong and the weak nuclear forces of the atoms, and the whole thing is going to go up in nuclear fission. So 
the fact that you and I are sitting here, that the electrons don't spin out of control around the protons of the atom, the neutrons, that the atoms actually hold together are strictly dependent on God holding things together. Part of managing the creation involves caring for animals. In chapter 39, God is going to talk to Job about six mammals and four birds, and there's only one that's domesticated. Let's go to chapter 38, verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Here's the principle. God's meticulous care for his creatures demonstrates his divine providence. God's meticulous care for his creatures demonstrates his divine providence. Providence has to do with God's divine governance, God's divine superintendence of the universe. Probably one of the best books to see God's providence in is the book of Esther. God is never, ever mentioned in the book of Esther. Not once. And yet his fingerprints are everywhere. Anytime in the Bible it says, and it came to pass, that's the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit. And it came about. Well, how come it came about? Because God behind the scenes made it happen. My favorite commentary on it came to pass is, it doesn't say, and it came to stay. It came to pass. You know, there's stuff in your life that you don't want to stay. Well, guess what? It's not going to stay. Because you're not going to stay. We've said this a lot of times. Whatever your life is like now, whether it's really, really good or really, really bad, it's temporary. Be of good cheer. This world is not your home. Fortunately. You know, we're leaving here. That's really good, okay? So anytime you see the word and it came to pass, I know I'm getting sidetracked, think about God's providence. When you read the news flow and you grind your teeth so that your orthodontist loves you, think about providence. God, nobody does anything without God's approval. Nobody. So God says, I provide for the wildlife. Look, Job, I provide for animals that you can't tame. You can't domesticate. Lions are the kings of the land predators, and humans are unable to tame them or provide for their needs, but God does. The raven is an utterly fascinating bird along with a crow. They rank with dolphins and chimpanzees in intelligence. Very, very bright birds. They use tools. They use gestures to communicate. They have a whole vocalization communication process. They show empathy, and their problem-solving abilities are actually superb. They usually scavenge for food, but they often steal it from other people. Ravens hide their food, but they're so aware of their surroundings and they know that other birds will steal from them, they will pretend to hide the food here, put it in their cheek, and when no one's looking, they'll hide it over here, and they'll watch the other raven go over there digging an empty hole. They're bright birds. Matter of fact, they're brighter than some people I know. Ravens in the north, in cold country, when they spot a frozen carcass, they will howl and squawk and make noise until the wolves show up and rip it open because they can't get into it. And then they have the scraps after the wolves get done. Very clever birds. God knows ravens. Job doesn't. Chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill, or do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down, they bring forth their young, they get rid of their labor pains, their offspring become strong, they grow in the open field, they leave and do not return to it. Job, you had nothing to do with any of that. How do the animals know when to give birth? How do they know how to raise their young? They don't depend on human beings. God hardwired it into their DNA. The wildlife of this world depends on God's care alone, and humanity has nothing to do with it. Verse 5. Who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness for a home, and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. Now, the wild donkey is the onager, O-N-A-G-E-R, onager. It's called the wild ass. 
yeah, I know there's something behind me. I dare not look. But if it came from the mind of Rob, I should probably be paying attention. All right, I'm going to risk it. Yeah, okay, yeah, that works. Steve. The wild ass was very respected in that culture, extraordinarily respected, because it was completely untamable. You could not tame this animal. They survive and even thrive today in very harsh, dry conditions. Um, I've seen a number of videos on the, on the Mongolian steppes. They really survive in dry, high climates. And uh, it would kill most species. And these animals, these wild donkeys, do extremely well. Matter of fact, if their watering holes are dry, they will dig water in dry riverbeds like an elephant. I did not know that. Very bright. If humans can't even control a donkey, then how can Job tell God how to run his universe? I mean, God is really kind of giving Job an education and how little he knows about the universe and that he cannot sustain and provide for the needs of animals, but God does. Verse 9. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes? Or will he harvest the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return to your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? Now, the wild ox is the auroch, A-U-R-O-C-H, the auroch. It's a wild ox that went extinct uh, due to unrestricted hunting, loss of habitat, and disease. As a matter of fact, the last one we have record of, I think, died in Poland, a female, in 1627. So that's when they finally went extinct. And all our domestic cattle are subspecies of, of wild cattle. Now, this male auroch stood about six feet high at the shoulder. I'm six feet one, so their shoulder is as high as my head. They weighed between 1,500 and 3,000 pounds, and their horns could reach 36 inches in length, so they could, you know, they'd skewer two or three of us like on a brochette, you know, like I'm saying. So they were the largest of all the hoofed beasts, except for the hippopotamus and the elephant. Big, big, big hoofed animal. And they were very aggressive, and they were heavily muscled and could not be tamed. And God says, Job, if you're so strong and you're so bright and you're so much in control, why don't you hook one of these up to your plow? I mean, they'd be great tractors for you. And Job's going, mm, don't think I want to die, that's why. So God's saying, I control the wild ox. You can't control the wild ox. I can control the universe. You can't. Get some perspective. Verse 13. So God's bringing these animals in front of Job, and he's asking him questions about them, and Job obviously has no answers. The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of love, for she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust. And she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned because God has made her forget wisdom. Boy, I know some people like this. And has not given her a share of understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. So the ostrich is the world's largest bird. It's it has wings, but obviously it's unable to fly. Males can weigh up to about 3,330, I mean, 330 to 340 pounds, big birds. And they reach nine feet tall. And you know from an ostrich, a lot of that height is neck, right? Lots of neck. They have the largest eye of any land animal. Their eyes are two inches in diameter, about the size of a billiard ball. Billiard ball, like an eight ball, that's a big eye. It's the largest eye of any land animal. Matter of fact, their eyes take up more room in their head than their brains. And God's talking about that. Yeah, I know, I know, don't, don't. I don't want to hear any names. I mean, that's, that's me, you know, I mean, I, I relate to the ostrich. They protect themselves, obviously, by having eyes at height, like the giraffe. They can see danger in a distance and they run away from it. They've been clocked at speeds of over 45 miles an hour. Unfortunately, they tend to run in circles. They're not that bright, you know, just saying. However, they have two sharp toes. They're unique. They don't have three toes. They only have two. And if you've ever been up to an ostrich farm when, they, when we had them attached to me, those toes are massive, and they are sharp. 
and they defend themselves, they kick forward and they rake downward. They kick forward and they rake downward, and they will split you from stem to stern. They will disembowel you with one kick. They kill lions that way if the lion get, they get a good kick. So it's a forward kick, not a rearward kick. And they have a nasty temperament. These are not phlegmatic animals. They are really, really nasty, and they can live between 50 and 60 years. Now, they do flap their wings, and he says they flap their wings joyously. That's because they only flap generally during mating season. And the male mates with multiple females, but only the dominant female sits on the eggs. So all the ostrich eggs are, are laid in a communal nest. It's called a dump nest. And they can contain 60 eggs. The dominant female's eggs are in the middle where it's obviously the most attractive. The rest of the females lay their eggs and then they abandon them. That's what he's talking about. They leave the nesting site and only the dominant female uh, manages the nesting site. The ostrich brain is among the smallest in the animal kingdom relative to its body weight, and amazingly, they still survive. Who's in charge of that? You think God, right? He manages this. Verse 19. Do you give the horse his might or clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed and does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground and he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, and he scents the battle from afar and the thunder of the captains in the war cry. God's describing a war horse, not a plow horse, not a pony, a war horse. The war horse loves conflict and competition. They were probably domesticated uh, very early in, in human history. As a matter of fact, almost all the animals that we domesticate, sheep, pigs, etc., etc., were domesticated probably extremely early in the ballgame. They were the muscle that humans used for generations to plow the fields and fight battles. And horses trained for warfare love competition and love uh, battle. Uh, cavalry have been the uh, mainstay of battle uh, tank formations, if you will. They were the tank divisions of that era for generations and generations. As a matter of fact, horses were widely used in battle, even up to and including the Second World War. Lots and lots of tanks, and, not tanks, but artillery guns were hauled by horses, even including World War II, so it's rather interesting. And God says, Job, were you the one who gave the horse the power? Were you the one who gave the horse the temperament? Were you the one who, do, who made the horse domesticatable so you could actually work with him? And Job would say, well, no, 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 no. Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the cliff he dwells and lodges upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food. His eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood. Where the slain are, there he is. Now, both the hawk and the, and the eagle are raptors. Raptor comes from the Latin, rapire, R-A-P-E-R-E, which means to seize. And if you look at the, a hawk or a raptor's claws, I mean, they're really designed one back, two front, three front. They grab and they seize. They feed on captured prey or carrion. Eagles and hawks, to some degree, have eyesight about eight times better than humans. Uh, they don't wear glasses, interestingly enough. They don't have ophthalmologists, and they can see a rabbit on the ground two miles away. Now, a rabbit's about this seas. They can see a rabbit clearly two miles away. They also have the ability to see movement beyond what we can understand. They generally ride thermals. Most raptors don't flap a lot. They've got big wings. They ride thermals. They get up half mile to a mile in the air, and then they survey the area with their great eyesight for prey. And you've seen eagles' nests, obviously, on high where they can soar down. And God says, do you tell the eagle what to do? I don't think so. I do. Chapter 40, verse 1. God is going to summarize his questions with Job, but he's not done with them. He says, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Job, Will a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. God is now saying, Job, the ball's in your court. 
speak. Job says, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice and I will add nothing more. Here's the principle. The right response to God's sovereign power and wisdom is submission and humility. The right response to God's sovereign power and wisdom is submission and humility. And God says, Job, you're a fault finder. A fault finder is one who reproves, right? One who corrects. And Job is, going, is obviously going to correct and fix and tell God what to do. He says, contend. Job, you're contending with me. You're complaining and you're quarreling with me and I'm God and you're man. And you're reproving me. You're judging me. You're rebuking me. Job has assumed a position of superiority to God. And God has revealed only a small portion of his wisdom and power to Job, and now he calls Job to account. And it's terribly easy for us to go, Job, look, just shut up. It's real simple. Why, why are you doing this? I mean, this is God. And yet, if we look in the mirror, we have to be honest and say, it's easy to submit to God when he agrees with us. You know, if God says, I want you to go that direction, and we go, well, yeah, that's the direction I wanted to go anyway. So it's easy to submit because God agrees with us. But if we want to go left and God says, no, I want you to turn 90 degrees, that's when we're going to find out, do we really submit to God? Or do we murmur, complain like the Israelites did, right? By the way, this doesn't mean you can't have honest conversations with God. It doesn't mean you can't bring your doubts and your fears and your worries and, quite frankly, your questions to God. Job is way past that point. He's now said, God is unjust, and I am righteous. Now, that's an entirely different level than simply asking God a question in an attitude of submission. So Job now humbly acknowledges that compared to God, he is of small account and not competent to answer God. He says, I have already said too much. I have nothing more to say. He doesn't understand how God created the world or how God manages his world. He's a finite creature. He doesn't understand 99.999% of God's processes, neither do we, of his creation. He's incompetent to instruct God on how to manage his world, including Job's own life. What is utterly interesting to me is what is wrong with this. Because if Job's heart was right at this point in time, we wouldn't need chapter 40 and 41. God's not done with him yet. So you say, what was wrong with this that God kept on grilling Job? Well, he says, I've got nothing to add to what I've already said. But there's no repentance here yet. He hasn't repented for the wickedness of judging God, of calling God to account. He just said, you're bigger than I am. I'm not going to say anything. But I stand by what I already said. So he says, and he says, you know, I've spoken. I'm not going to answer. I've asked twice. I'm not going to add anything more, but I don't retract anything I already said. God says, you're not repenting yet. You're gonna, I'm going to bring you to repentance, and that's what the next two chapters are about. So it's interesting, looking at the life of Job, he is us. Job's kind of like Charlie Brown. He suffered more than anybody else, but he's representative of, of us as people, how we behave under prolonged struggles that require endurance. The next week is going to be utterly interesting as we look at the sovereignty of God and how he deals with Job to bring him back into right relationship with and restore him. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to go back and a quick summary of the whole book and, and, and say, what are the lessons we can learn from Job? In the meanwhile, let's summarize today and then we'll do prayer and praise. One, lesson one, acknowledging your own ignorance is the first step toward acquiring wisdom. And by the way, you can't do that on your own. None of us, you know, the most dangerous thing is not to know what you don't know. We don't know what we don't know. You know who can reveal your ignorance to you? The Holy Spirit. So you ask, Lord, open my eyes. Show me what I need to know. He's the only reliable one who can show us what we don't know and what we need to know.
Number, but we have to be willing. Number two, the origin and scope of the creation testifies to the infinite power of the creator. When you consider the heavens, the work of God's finger, the moon and the stars, it should bring us to the point of humility before his infinite power. Number three, the unparalleled organization and complexity of the creation reveals the infinite wisdom of the creator. And God has just barely given Job a few examples of, of the complexity and God's incredible organization. Number three, or four, God's control goes from the macro, the stars and the galaxies, to the micro, subatomic particles and genomes. Last week we talked about God controls the stars as a witness to him, but he also, we see the newborn babies, and that also testifies to his goodness and his sovereignty. Five, God's meticulous care for his creatures demonstrates his divine providence. What he didn't say and what Jesus said is, not a sparrow falls, and I don't know. And he says, how much more valuable are you than many sparrows? So we look and say, if God takes care of the lions and the ravens and the horse and all these other animals, how much more will he take care of us? Oh, you of little faith. He says, I care for you. You're my children. So when we look at how God cares for the animals and how his providence demonstrates his love and his care, we should look and say, he sent Jesus for us. How much more does he love us and care for us beyond our understanding, his grace? And lastly, the right response to God's sovereign wisdom and power is submission and humility. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, I know this week is going to bring some interesting things for you. It's 167 hours until next week, and it will be an adventure. Some good, some bad, but your God is greater than whatever we will face this week. Amen? Now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.